AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. Hey Stan, so you know, location tracking is something that we see being used a lot more often lately, especially in terms of abuse, and it sounds like you had a story uh, that's touching on this around Google? Yes. Um, actually, I was looking through Ars Technica yesterday and this article uh, popped up. Uh, it looks like Google is set to change the way their SDK works for um, the API that has to do with location. I've actually already noticed it on my phone. Um, so from time to time, I'll be using my phone and I'll get a little notification that says, hey, such and such application tried to get your location in the background. Mm -hmm. Did you intend for that to happen? Did you know? And you have three options. You can basically say, uh, you know, oh, deny, turn off location for this thing. And one of them is, oh, don't let it do it in the foreground when I'm using the app, but never in the background. So I notice I've been doing that for like a lot of apps, even like very legitimate ones. Uh, so like I went to a theme park earlier, I guess sometime last year, and they have like this really cool app that based on your location is helping you to figure out like where rides you're in. Right, right. When you're using the app, you totally expect uh, to be using location services. But uh, now that my vacation's done, <laughs> uh, I kind of don't expect it to kind of check in on me and make sure that I'm, where am I? You know? Right, right. I kind of want that to stay private. Um, so it looks like um, it's good that that's an option now, because I know that, you know, years ago even, you know, when you have an Android app and it's asking for your location, that's kind of like a one and done deal. That's your location. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, you have it your just turns it on and then well, it's whenever... location f uh, permission for the app for that app, but you don't right. have a, like a granular control. Uh, but now it looks like the controls or the app permissions are a little bit more granular. Like you can say, oh, okay, I'll allow the location to be just this time, uh, or you know every time or just this time in the background or in the foreground. You know, allowing right, right. For that. So I think it just gives more to the end user, um, I guess, to select uh, what how how much they want to expose about themselves. It gives you a choice, uh, whereas before you didn't have that choice. Uh, but this article, so this is what I've noticed on my phone, but this article actually talks about how Google is taking it a little bit a step further, mm -hmm. which I think is also good. So it seems like um, there's a lot of uh, Google Play apps that utilize this thing uh, in the background, they'll get your location. And obviously this could be used for user tracking. I'm sure there's some good purposes for it, but it could probably be used uh, you know, to spy on you and things like that. So what they're gonna do is they're gonna have actually manually have people be reviewing the permissions for different applications. And um, for, uh, they're gonna have like four questions that these people are gonna ask about uh, whether this app should have this permission. And if it doesn't, then you know, the, the developer of the app can still like say, oh no, we need this. Mm -hmm. uh, but other than that, it's basically uh, gonna try to eliminate this as much as possible. And they have like a whole timeline, people who wanna read the article can go and check it out, but there's like a timeline how, presumably by November 2nd, they'll have gone through most of the apps or all of the apps or something like that in the Play Store um, and looking to really call or prevent most apps from doing this uh, location services in the background. So it sounds like Google is taking kind of a firmer stance there um, and giving a little more control to the user to say when, if, and how an app has the ability to use location tracking. Uh, so that's a permission that you know an app would have to request from the user, uh, but more than just, I guess, the old way where it would just you know allow you to say yes or no. Now you can say when, like only when it's um, a foreground running app. 
I think it's a positive step because you're giving more choice to the person with the phone. So if they want a specific application to be able to see their background data, because there are legitimate purposes for that. Right. Like let's say you want to share your location with your friends or something, you guys are doing going on an outing, maybe there's an app that tracks that, and you want that, as long as you know about it, I think it's fine. But if there's an app that you're like, I didn't know it was going to do that. Right, then, like it's a game or something. Exactly. And you're like, whoa, it doesn't really need this functionality. But, Ex exactly, right. and why is it doing that? And again, there you might make the argument, what about location-based advertisement and stuff like that? And there's probably a place for that as well. Uh, but you kind of want to, again, you want the user to have the choice. And so I'm glad to see that they're offering this choice to the users by just something simple as asking that question. Really, I know it gave me like more an understanding of what's happening on my own phone and uh, gave me the choice to restrict or limit the sharing. So I think it's very nice. Yeah, that's a that's a huge step in the right direction, from my opinion. You know, you, you think about Google and they're really good at implementing complex things and really simple approaches. So I think it's a good thing for the average user base of Android phones. So kudos to them. Yes. Yeah, I just I wonder how many you know of the typical users are going to be savvy enough to understand what controls I actually want to put in place or when because you know there's so many people out there they're probably just like don't bother me just use it all you can have location access all the time you know a lot of people out yes. not us right right because uh, you know we're we're all paranoid but um, but the rest of the uh, uh, user population, especially you know non-tech savvy ones, are probably yes. um, maybe not going to use those features as much. But still, I guess, like you said, it's a good thing that they they are permitting it, um, or they're you know giving this as an option now. And I feel like Apple's done this with their uh, devices for a while. I don't know if it's the same degree of granularity that Android is doing it here, um, but. Um, you know, I guess we'll have to do a comparison to see what the, the fine-grained controls are. Well, you know what? Sometimes the, the companies, they kind of set uh, the playing field. So maybe now that Google's done this, Apple can go and review what they've done and see right. if they can up the game in terms of privacy. Think about it. When Usually when you first install an app, it's going to ask for different types of permissions that it generally needs to do whatever it needs to do. And if it doesn't make sense that it needs location tracking or something else like access to your photos or access to your text messages. Think about you know what permissions you're giving up to these apps because maybe they're doing something they shouldn't be, especially if it doesn't make sense. Hey Tom, I hear you have a very interesting story for us today. Yeah, hey guys. There's uh, an interesting article that uh, recently came out that uh, I was gonna talk about. Um, it's actually a, a new command and control uh, technique that's being used to uh, bypass firewall rules that I thought was pretty interesting. It really kind of stuck out to me as something that was a, a noteworthy kind of evolution of uh, malicious activity. So the, the article is actually written by Sophos, uh, specifically their labs team. And basically what they discovered was there was this uh, adversary that was hiding out within various cloud infrastructure networks owned by private organizations. And they were essentially using a, a custom toolkit, a malware toolkit, to uh, piggyback C2 traffic onto legitimate traffic that was bound for the web server. So this was discovered on AWS, uh, which you know is the, the big leader in cloud. However, this technique most notably can also be used um, for you know typical on-prem network infrastructure or um, you know, standard networks around the world rather than just cloud. So while it may have been observed on, you know, AWS, it's actually a technique that I think is 
uh, is pretty noteworthy just because it's something we can see in almost any as a threat to almost any organization uh, right now. But basically, um, it's not operating system specific uh, for the most part. There are sections of this toolkit that are built for uh, Windows operating systems and uh, Linux as well. But uh, you know, to give more detail, basically what these guys found was that the attacker was able to basically reach victim machines inside the network by sending requests to a public-facing web server um, through the firewall, of course, and the firewall in that case is allowing it because it's just typical inbound web traffic. However, on that web server, there's a, uh, a rootkit installed that's actually intercepting that traffic uh, after it goes through the firewall and um, basically transferring that into uh, malicious command and control activity, forwarding it over to an, a back door that's uh, inside the network. Uh, so it's specially crafted um, you know, web requests that, from a defender's perspective, look nothing more than just kind of like typical requests that'll just get dropped at the web server because they're invalid. Uh, but they're making it through the firewall. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting technique because it's by, mainly geared towards bypassing the firewall and, you know, can be used for back and forth communication. And from a, like, again, from a defender's perspective, it really kind of comes down to hunting for very anomalous web traffic um, because, you know, you're seeing just internal uh, systems talking to your web server uh, from the outside. You're just seeing, you know, standard web traffic going to and from uh, the web server. Shows ingenuity on the part of the adversaries. Uh, at the same time, it's kind of scary because it's such an advanced technique. So it's pretty tricky to defend against. Uh, they, these guys found it through anomalous traffic hunting. Um, so it's not something that you can really see through you know, like IDS signatures or uh, anything like that. So a lot of the detection capabilities that are for something like this appear to be isolated around um, some basic IOCs, but mostly log log details. Um, so that's pretty interesting. But the uh, the challenges kind of presents for defenders is is pretty complex because it's you know it's a more advanced and complex attack toolkit that doesn't require just a single piece of malware, but rather you know, a whole set, a whole suite of malware. So, you know, there's not just something, it's not a simple hash you can detect. There's a whole toolkit that is a bit more complex to try and hunt down. Um, so these guys actually assessed that this was a part of likely a nation state sponsored attack group, um, mainly because of the complexity, but also because of the toolkit they've used, which is related to that, the bespoke toolkit, if you're not familiar with it, it's pretty interesting. Um, but yeah, you know, I think, in my opinion, I think this is something that we're going to start to see a bit more as time continues. You know, as something like this is seen as successful through the eyes of other adversaries, it could be, um, you know, taken on as a potential attack method for others as well. So is it the case that they didn't really compromise the web server per se, they got something that runs at a lower level and intercepts that connection before it ever gets to the web server? Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's the the, pers the, the piece that's uh, kind of intercepting it on the way to the web server is actually what they're uh, what they call the listener, um, and that's really just kind of uh, kind of deobfuscating the C2 traffic and sending it to the the actual backdoor that's on a separate system internally. Um, the the infrastructure behind how it all works is a, is a bit complex, so I definitely recommend uh, folks checking out the article um, that we'll link, but. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty interesting technique and there's a whole 
category of different uh, capabilities that are spread across different uh, specific tools itself. Hmm. So it's almost like a port knocking thing in a way, uh, similar to like some of the port knocking type yeah. techniques. Yeah. yeah, it definitely reminded me of that. It has uh, that vibe of a lot of the old school attacks, but um, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting just because I haven't seen something like this in quite a while rather than doing something like web shells. Web shells are super popular right now for attackers to use, but um, this one's just clearly bypassing through, you know, forged requests that the firewall would typically, they would try and block the firewall or a, or a proxy or something, but um, this sneaks right by, which is pretty interesting. Right. Go ahead. Sir. Do you know which part of the uh, of the stack? I guess where were they uh, hiding the traffic? Was it at like the IP layers or TCP layer or right at the application layer? Uh, right at the application layer, I believe. And I think it depends on exactly what they're trying to do. If it's just a beacon or if it's actual data exfiltration, I think the data exfiltration side of the house um, kind of steps up the game, from what I can tell. Uh, the article actually has a pretty amusing graphic to um, kind of explain it all because there's so many moving pieces to this whole thing, which is uh, pretty funny. <laughs> right. Yeah, I guess it seems it's pretty advanced to be able to, I guess, intercept traffic on a box right be between different layers, the operating system. and Especially and when and there's another process that's bound to that port listening. Yeah. Right? So you're... It's definitely like a rootkit thing, which is what you mentioned. It's a yeah. rootkit. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Uh, very advanced technique for sure. It actually reminds yeah. me of like steganography techniques, I think, where you like hide something in an image. It's almost like in plain sight. Right. You could see it, but you don't know it's really there unless you know like maybe the decoding algorithm and stuff like that. So, yeah, pretty, uh, pretty impressive technique from the bad guys here. And I'm assuming yeah. the adversary would have had to implant this via some other means, probably, right? You know, they got to get it yeah. onto that web server somehow, um, and then yeah. use that as kind of their exfiltration point for and command and control point. They weren't able to confirm exactly how these networks were actually compromised to lead up to implementing all this uh, this whole tool set, uh, but they think it may have been. Uh, unauthorized remote access through something like SSH that allowed them to initially kind of break into the network to deploy all of this. Right, right. So I guess the moral of the story is if your web logs on your actual web server don't jive with what your network, you know, traffic collection looks like, then you know something's wrong, right? Yes. Like if I can see it in the network traffic, but the web server doesn't know it ever happened, um, even though I know that's the web server, you know, that would be an interesting, I'm so sure that would how it would stand out, but. Um, yeah, I guess it's yeah. important to make sure that you're kind of monitoring both ends then. Right. You want to make sure you're monitoring the logs uh, on the server itself and something you have at the network layer, um, just so yeah. that the rootkit can't impact it. Right. Interesting. All right, cool. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. This is uh, an example of where it's important to have a layered approach to protection. So you should always be collecting like web application logs or application logs or web logs. Uh, but at the same time, uh, to be protected against this threat, you're going to want to make sure you have uh, an external monitoring solution that looks at your network, maybe a WAF, a firewall proxy or reverse proxy that can log for you things independently of the operating system. So if you did have such a, uh, like a, let's say a Trojan or rootkit on that server, you would at least be able to deter detect it via your network monitoring. Hey, John, sounds like you have an interesting story for us today. Uh, yeah, thanks, Tom. So um, this is kind of maybe a little bit of a rehash of things we've talked about 
towards the last half of 2019. A lot of us are probably familiar, I know we covered it on ThreatTrack previously, that there's some vulnerabilities in uh, a few different VPN vendors uh, software, such as Pulse Secure, Fortinet, um, I think there's another one in there that they have some uh, vulnerabilities that you know, a lot of people may you know, not be aware of that they have on their uh, corporate environments or otherwise, and uh, they haven't patched for them. So this uh, article is kind of talking about, you know, we, we had seen last year that there are various actor groups uh, poking around and trying to exploit those various VPN, vulnerable VPN pieces of software. And this one is a report from ClearSky who uh, did a pretty detailed analysis where they've attributed um, a set of activity. There's a bunch of different actor groups targeting this. So I don't want to say this is just the one group, but they have identified there's at least a pocket of Iranian actors, nation state Iran actors, targeting these as well for the purposes of infiltrating uh, organizations, exfiltrating data, and then maybe getting some persistence so they could do something later in the future if they wanted to. Kind of trying to raise the awareness that we know Iran in the past has gotten into the game of wiper malware and things of that nature. So not saying that's what their motivation is here, but um, something to be concerned about that if you were uh, compromised before you patched your environments, you wanna make sure that there's been no um, persistence mechanism left behind, uh, which may not be trivial to do. I don't have exact information on how you would go about finding that. But you want to make sure that, um, you know, if you did fall into this camp of, oh, I do use Pulse Secure, I afford net, and we had to patch for this problem, you might want to do a little more due diligence just to make sure that you don't have any remnants left behind that left them some ability to maintain access into your internal corporate networks, uh, just in case that, um, uh, that scenario arises where they're just laying in wait for something to happen in the future where they want to do something uh, to cause disruption. So it's important uh, that everyone be aware that there are many groups, not just APT groups, are, are targeting these. And if you use VPN services or like stuff with Citrix in any way, you're going to be a constant target of these types of attacks. A couple of other things they mentioned that I thought was interesting is that I think it's, is it APT 34 and 35 they list them as, the two Iranian groups? They noticed that it appears, I don't know how accurate their reporting is, but it appears that there might be, in the past, those actor groups kind of operated independently and there might be some overlap uh, between them now because there's some shared infrastructure that they used um, in this activity that they were looking at. Uh, so that's interesting as well, because in the past we hadn't seen that before. And then they also said that people should be wary, you know, besides the ones that we knew about from last year, like Fortinet, Pulse Secure, et cetera, uh, recently the Citrix vulnerability came out uh, which is not necessarily VPN, but it kind of is. It's a remote access type of method into your network potentially if you use the Citrix um, uh, server software to you know, have some sort of uh, remote desktop capability into parts of your network. Uh, that has a vulnerability that was announced very recently as well. Um, and it looks like that they're starting to um, uh, implement that as well as part of their uh, attack patterns uh, in terms of looking for um, you know, vulnerable hosts. So that'd be something to be worried about. I guess the one thing in terms of recommendations that I was gonna point out is patch. Make sure you're patched. If you can, um, you know, do some analysis to see if you have any sort of strange network activity 
uh, around those endpoints or anywhere else in your network that might, uh, they, I would read this article because they go into some of the tool sets that they saw them leave behind uh, as well for maintaining persistence. But a couple of other things, especially around VPN that I know personally um, I've seen have a really good return on investment is um, using um, uh, client-side certificates. So a lot of people out there probably have VPN software through various vendors and anybody who has that VPN client could connect in, but you can set it up so that you need a client-side certificate as well. It's like a mutual TLS authentication. And if you don't have that certificate, uh, you can't connect to that corporate network. So that's a really good mitigation strategy if you're not already using it, as well as you know, multi-factor authentication, which a lot of people already do have some sort of RSA token-based authentication for their VPN, which helps um, you know, make it a little bit more difficult for an adversary to, you know, get in when they shouldn't be in there. Yes. So that's, you know, that's all I had on that one, really. I don't know if you had any thoughts. I guess outbound beaconing, although we know sometimes the C2, uh, like right. shared with us, can come in, but looking for any kind of, like, strange anomalous beaconing, going to websites that you don't expect. If you're using a proxy, it would still be good to look at your firewall logs because maybe there's malware that's not like proxy aware that shows you an indication of something is, is wrong. So it's probably like a ton more te techniques, but it's just a few things I kind of thought uh, of when you mentioned you know, looking for anomalous activity. Right, right. This is a, a really interesting uh, piece of research. Um, you know, to speak on the, the attribution overlap between APT 33 and 34, I think you, you mentioned, um, uh, it's, it really kind of speaks to the complexity of the, the intelligence apparatus in that region, uh, the overlap and reuse of infrastructure um, kind of goes to show you that you shouldn't, um, you know, just take the general consensus on open source intelligence for who, what adversary does what, so, you know, there's so much behind the scenes that we just don't know at this point. And that overlap really kind of shines a light on that in this case, I think. Yeah, definitely. And I think you're corrected me because I think I said 34 and 35, but I think you're probably right that it's 33 and 34. I don't know. It's somewhere in the 30s. <laughs> I get them all confused. But um, yes, yeah, I think there's a lot of complexity there um, in uh, in trying to do attribution. And I know that, you know, we, in cases we worked, some things line up really well with other people's reports. And you're like, yes, that's definitely matches with what we saw somebody else report and they reported it as APT 34. So that's what we'll call it. But, um, you know, I think a lot of these guys also learn from each other and, you know, a super savvy nation state could make themselves look like another nation state. And I think we've seen that before as well, you know, where Russia and some other people have tried to look like other actor sets by using their tool sets and techniques. Um, in their thing. So I'm not saying, you know, nothing's 100%, but, you know, they probably, there's little um, missteps they made along the way in terms of the bad actors that led them to believe that this is probably the case, that, you know, yeah. this is the actor here. So uh, anyway, yeah. yeah, go ahead, Tom. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, absolutely. The, the use of potential false flags, but like you mentioned, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, growth in terms of trying to acquire infrastructure that's been used by one actor for use in a different actor that's uh, trying to make that a little bit more complex for defenders trying to do attribution. So yeah, totally agree with you. Right, right. Okay. Uh, well, that's all I really had on that one. And uh, if you have any of these tool sets like Citrix or Pulse or Fortinet, 
you want to make sure that you're patched, um, especially I would say Citric lately, because that one has been heavily targeted lately, and it's pretty, um, it's pretty low. Uh, what do you call that? Does it fruit? No, it doesn't require a lot of expertise in order to exploit the Citrix vulnerability, in my opinion. So, um, uh, you know, that's one that probably very easy for, you know, uh, less savvy attackers to exploit. Unfortunately, um, these systems, they give access, you know, from external sources right into the core of your network. Um, so it's, it's very serious, to, you know, you have to protect these uh, uh, endpoints or these, the software or, or these systems uh, very carefully and patching is, is very important. If you haven't patched by this point, then I would be um, recommending that you do a really good scrubbing, scrutinizing of those servers, hardware, um, looking for any artifacts that maybe you were compromised because there's more than just this one actor set out there trying to exploit those. Hey John, how are you? Today I am... So excited that you're doing the internet weather <laughs> this week. Yes, I have the internet weather for you. So you finally get to experience what it is I do uh, differently than yourself. So uh, the first report that we're going to start with is the top 10 most probe reports. This is our way to measure uh, internet scanning activity uh, based on volume, uh, how many flows per hour. Um, and this is uh, basically showing you the top 10 ports. Um, all of these ports, we kind of cover them every single time on internet weather. Mm -hmm. There's not much difference. But one of the things I've been doing uh, when I do the internet weather is I go ahead and take a look at port 445 TCP. Uh, why? Well, it's all because if you look back, I guess this is in April going back 900 days, mm -hmm. uh, there was this one little spike and that was when uh, WannaCry Cry, yes, started. And that weekend, everyone uh, in the industry was probably called in and was asked, hey, are we vulnerable to this? Yes or no? Um, and so I think uh, if you can zoom in on there, you'll notice that, um, that th there was a significant drop. But unfortunately, once the news kind of dissipated, uh, the activity for this worm, 445, using the internal blue vulnerability, kind of climbed. Yep. You see it reached uh, kind of, I would say, a peak uh, there in September 2018. Uh, and still quite a lot of activity from the original baseline here. Uh, it's been, and it, it, it's kind of gone down. Uh, and so what I've been doing every month or so is just kind of revisiting this and seeing, hey, is this going away or not? Is this growing? Or you know, I wish we had uh, even more history because you yes. go back further. Is it Conficker? Was that the other one, yes. right? That was, it was up high as well. And then we kind of got rid of all that and it went down to that, you know, noise floor of, you know, so, 10 million or whatever, 10,000 scan sips per yeah. hour that you see there. And then WannaCry happened and it all came back again. Yes, exactly. Uh, so, uh, I guess what I do is I kind of show you. Uh, oh, look at this! It's animated. The trend, and then I ask you. Let's see. Make sure I don't oh, miss is it. Is there a trivia question? There is a trivia question. What do you think is going to happen next? <laughs> is it going to go down, go up, or stay the same? Well, I'm going to say that because of all the fears of coronavirus, it's going to go down, just like the stock market's been doing this week. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's so my guess. It looks oh, like you actually have an answer. Uh, it kind of stayed about the same, gone up and or down, I guess. It's hard to say, but it does seem like uh, overall, you know, since 2018, the trend is downward. Uh, but lately here, it's a little hard to tell uh, if there's anything happening. Originally, instead of drawing the arrow, I actually drew a little squiggly because I couldn't make up my mind of, you know, does that look like it's right, the same. Right. So uh, now with that bit of trivia done, um, 
let's go on to the other report that we have. So this is the ports, but this time ordered by the number of IP addresses um, doing scanning. Um, so this is one of my favorites because it has to do with, it helps to identify potential botnets um, that are growing out there. Um, so if we look at the top 10 here, nothing immediately jumps out. You know, it's kind of like the same ports that we usually normally see right. anyway. Nothing we haven't talked about exactly. in the past. So today I decided to go and look at the next 10, uh, sort of like the top 20, so to speak, okay. and see what's going on there. Um, and so the first thing that's important looking at the pie chart, if you look at it, you could see like three quarters of the pie is actually the top 10 ports, uh, where and an eighth is all the other ports. And so the, the, the next 10 of the top 20 is really the eighth of all of the traffic, right, which, right. Is, which gotcha. is kind of interesting. One slice of pizza. <laughs> yeah, one <laughs> slice of pizza uh, compared to all the other slices. So um, looking at this, uh, I guess uh, the ports that jumped out at me uh, were in position 11 and 14, and that's port 9530 TCP and port uh, 26 TCP. Uh, why? Uh, they're just kind of weird and off. Yes, they're weird, yeah. Yeah, they're kind of weird. So uh, let's go and zoom in on it a little bit more. So um, one of the ways to zoom in on it is to look at all of the volume for scanning um, and the number of IP addresses doing scanning. So this is a year's worth of data here. And you could see that going back a year, there barely were any IP addresses doing any scanning on this port. Mm -hmm. uh, but here, I, that's, I think that's about February 9th or so. Uh, starting around February 9th, you could see this large spike with a lot of devices, um, thousands almost, I think like at the peak, 7,000 devices per hour doing scanning, uh, which is kind of weird. Uh, that one larger spike. Yeah. Earlier on, that might be an interesting one to go figure out who that was. Yes, uh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, so this would probably indicate like the precursor activity of right. maybe a security researcher or an adversary who's attempting to build out the botnet, and maybe there is one IP address doing scanning, and he was doing a lot to bootstrap the botnet or something like right. that. For sure, that's uh, very interesting. Uh, so. One of the things I like to do is look at the distribution of these bots. And sometimes, actually, if you look at a lot, if you just look at this map by itself, it kind of looks like any other botnet map out there, because mm -hmm. it's got a bunch of dots, it's a piece of the world. But if you've been looking at them for a while, you notice that some botnets actually do have like a little regional hotspot zones. And this one in particular, um, you know, it's lit up in like Brazil, Europe, and um, you know, there's a little bit in yeah, India, Southeast Asia, but not like a lot Vietnam in- Vietnam or something down um, there? I think- I Maybe Thailand is down okay. there and stuff like that. Uh, but like you see, there's not a lot in China, I would say. Not as much as you right. expect. Not much in the USA, really, either. Yeah, not much Relatively. in the USA, but in some parts of Mexico, uh, there is a little bit of a hot zone there. Mm -hmm. uh, so you could see there are definitely hot spots uh, for this specific uh, area, uh, for this specific, I guess, activity. And, and so question is, what's causing it? Um, so we got like um, looking at the honeypot and trying to understand what kind of traffic is heading towards this. Uh, you could see the honeypot kind of reflects the same spike as usually no events towards this port and then suddenly a whole bunch. Uh, there's not many events over the last 60 days, but you could see um, in terms of the type of protocol, so almost 80% is basically this packet right here. Uh, so it says open telnet open once, uh, against this port, and what that does, according to this write-up, is uh, if you send this packet to that port, it'll open up Telnet on port 23. This is actually port knocking at its core. 
Uh, so you is that for a specific device? That is for a specific device. Yes, exactly. So it'll open up port 23, and then you can use one of several pre-configured passwords to log oh, in to this device. Now, what are these devices? Um, it turns out uh, these are some sort of uh, Zion my based yeah, DVRs, NVRs, and IP cameras. So there was actually several things going on with this thing. So in 2017, there were a couple of write-ups out there uh, which detailed exactly this flaw and also reported port 95270 TCP, which I actually went ahead and mapped out uh, the scanners are port 95270 TCP as well. I don't see like much overlap necessarily, although they are related to the same mm -hmm. device. And what was wrong with 95270 TCP is actually like a debug telnet uh, uh, thing. So it's basically telnet on that port. Uh, but in 2020, so this was widely reported and uh, I guess it went away. Uh, but in 2020, uh, there was a new, actually February 7th or something, or 4th. Okay, so very recently. Very recently, actually right before the, all the scanning activity started. Right. Uh, so February 4th, uh, this was reported widely that there is, uh, basically on this specific port, the protocol changed. So before, all you had to do, all you had to do was send uh, that one message and then it will be okay. But now what they're saying is you can also send like, this is like some sort of a key exchange using a pre-shared key or something like that. So basically there's a little bit of a challenge response and only after that, it'll open up port 23 or in this case, I think in some articles I read it was actually opening up uh, 95 TCP. Uh, okay. and it'll open up Telnet there. Oh, I see. So it's okay. a little bit more to the port knocking, or like a little bit of an authentication, uh, but still basically a backdoor. Um, so it's uh, what I did is I took like some random IP addresses and that were looked scanning. in Shodan, um, and about 50% of them uh, were found in Shodan with 554 TCP open, which is RTSP, mm -hmm. which generally is associated with like DVRs, MVRs, IP addresses. Um, so it's very likely that this could be like a Soho DVR botnet, kind of like Mirai or something similar. And you could see everything that we've discovered, the ports, um, the traffic on the honeypot is very consistent with what's being described in the articles. So it's clear that this is, um, you know, this type of device uh, that's doing it. So uh, the next thing, uh, port 26 TCP, also has very interesting charts. So this chart is a number of, um, I guess, scanning flows in general, and this is the IP addresses doing it. So you could see that there is a lot of like weird uh, scanning going on in this port. It'll come, it'll go away. Um, there was a time where it all started and went away, but um, you could, when you look at the number of IP addresses doing it, only some of them I would say you could really attribute to like a botnet right, necessarily, right, right. where it's like a bunch of devices doing it at once. Um, so I decided to go ahead and look at it on the map. Now, if you were to see this map and the one before, it's actually a difference, even though it looks about the same. There's a much more pronunciation in like Brazil and actually this, this region right here of Brazil, whereas in the other map with the other botnet, that wasn't the case. And here you could see there's less activity in India, less activity in Europe, uh, but much more activity in China, uh, mm -hmm. which you didn't see with the other buttons. So these are different types of devices, possibly also DVRs and things like that. Could just if, be that they're more popular in those parts of the exactly, world too. Yeah, exactly, um, but it's not clear where it is. So I went ahead and I started like researching this a little bit. I also looked at our honeypot logs and in the honeypot I couldn't see uh, anything that would let me know 
um, exactly what this is. So 26 is actually a port that some servers use for SMTP, a uh, specific type of server, but this is not what we're seeing, I don't believe, um, is associated with that SMTP server on port 26. Okay. Um, and there's some, there's always RDP scanning on every port, uh, right. usually emanating out of Russia, and uh, that's probably not what we're looking for. And actually, I found this article at SANS from last year, from uh, December, uh, actually Jim Clausing uh, oh, okay. explains this activity. He had set up a, um, a little bit of like a, a honeypot that answers back with a banner, and when he did that, he noticed that a bunch of the devices are trying basically Telnet. So the stuff that is happening here seems to be related to somebody looking for Telnet open on port 26, um, mm. as opposed to, uh, I guess, being on the standard port of 23. Um, but this botnet seems to be just a little bit smarter because it won't send you any of this until it gets a banner. Right, so it's looking for a banner from the client that it's exactly. going to. Exactly. So this was the key to unlocking maybe what was going on. Um, so I'd say, uh, yeah, that's it. That's it for the internet weather this week. Two interesting ports uh, when you look just a little bit past the top 10. Uh, and both look like uh, botnets that are kind of in the background always doing something, coming up and down. And they're acting probably like a worm kind of Exactly. Methodology where they look for more vulnerable hosts of their same type and infect them and then, you know, recruit more into the botnet. Yes. Right. Um, and so that's all for the Internet Weather today. Thanks, John. Thank you. You know, I think you did such a fantastic job with this Internet Weather. I don't ever want to do Internet Weather again. You, <laughs> did, you outshone me completely. So oh, good job. Funny, Thanks, Dan. Thank you, John. We discovered two new ports or uh, botnets related to two ports that we hadn't seen for a while, which was 9530 TCP and 2060CPN. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.